You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him in all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit rivertownchurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. Well, good morning. Wonderful songs and psalm and the theme altogether that Christ is King and Lord over all. And so we'll be continuing in our series, Christ is King. And today we'll look at Christ being King over the magistrate. After I turn myself down a little bit. Is that good? Okay. Felt a little bit loud. And I'm quiet right now, so that means that it would be really loud later. We'll be in Romans 13 primarily. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bible there. We're a little late to the game, you might say, uh, as we address this topic sort of long after the COVID tyranny has mostly subsided, but it's good to address it nonetheless, and so we'll do that. And we're just going to do a brief overview. This is a, a brief overview of Christian Protestant political thought. Volumes have been written on various aspects and elements of this topic Uh, So we can't really do it justice, but we'll look to just get a sense of how to think politically as Christians. And so let's pray before we dive in and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we confess, we bow before you, before the Lord Jesus. We kiss the Son and pay homage to you. As Lord and ruler of all the earth, all authority comes from you, and all authority has been given to you, Lord Jesus. You're seated at the right hand of the Father, expecting till your enemies are made your footstool. And we want to learn and grow in grace in how to think rightly and how to think biblically and Christianly about every single topic, and about this one in particular, about governments, magistrates, politics as we come before this today and we pray for your blessing for your illumination of your word that you would give us soft humble and eager hearts to hear your heart and your mind speak to us through your word this morning in Jesus name amen so this this Christ is king over the magistrate and magistrate is just a catch-all term for any sort of governmental institution, whatever the mode of government is. Christian political thought was well established during the time of the reformers. It was something that they spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of effort developing, and it's really something that we've neglected by and large today. Uh, You know, it's easy to say, maybe you've heard, or maybe you've even thought, uh, well, Christians shouldn't be political. You know, that's kind of a common thing that we say today. That, that would have been a very strange and foreign concept to the, 
the church fathers and to the reformers and to many of the men throughout church history. And it's easy to say that. It's easy to say that when we're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and labored and shed blood and spent much energy developing and instituting uh, good government. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you see the shirts for sale on a website that say, smash capitalism, and they're selling and making money from them on a uh, website online. <laughs> it's about that silly. But if we would bequeath any semblance of healthy government to our children, we must know how to think Christianly about it and seek to institute it in that way. And because of Christ as king, is, because Christ is king over all of life, he has something to say about politics, about governance, about ruling the affairs of men. So before we get to that, we have to start with what we've sung about and read about already, which is the ultimate authority, the divine monarchy. King Jesus, who sits on the throne of David. You see this title, this term used constantly throughout the scriptures, the throne of David, the Davidic covenant, that David was a picture of the ultimate king, Christ Jesus, who would come and sit on the throne of all eternity and rule justly and righteously forever. You see it in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And we learn from Acts 2, the sermon at Pentecost, that David was prophesying in that psalm concerning Christ. He says, Peter says in that passage that, that David, we, we already know that David didn't ascend to the throne for he's dead and his body's with us even today. But he was speaking concerning Christ. In the book of Revelation, the theme is worship the lamb on the throne. 24 times the word worship is used, 30 times the word lamb is used, and 47 times in Revelation, the word throne is used. So the throne is the prominent fixture in the new heavens and in the new earth. The throne of Jesus Christ. But what about until then? What about here on the earth now in the fallen and corrupt world that we live in? Well, we don't have any exact prescription in the scriptures of what the best type or the best form of government is. But the founding fathers of America knew the corruption of man and they sought to restrain it with checks and balances and they established what we have now, a constitutional republic, and this is key, with civil laws that were modeled after God's law. Civil laws modeled after God's law. Which is the reason that it's yielded some of the greatest blessing in history for America and for all the world because we've largely followed God's definition of good and evil, God's definition of justice and righteousness, and he blesses that kind of obedience. He blesses it even from unregenerate men, even unregenerate kings and rulers, like it talks about in Psalm 2, they must still acknowledge him. They must kiss the son and pay homage to him and acknowledge him as Lord of all, like Nebuchadnezzar. When he didn't do that, and the Lord humbled him. And then finally he did acknowledge it. But regardless of the mode, 
of government, whether it's constitutional republic, democracy, monarchy, oligarchy, whatever. We have some basic principles given to us by the Lord in his word about how government should function. And that's where we're going to turn to Romans 13. And I want to break, I'll read this and then break it down into two sections. We'll look at the implications for government and the implications for citizens. So Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So let's look first at the implications for government from this passage and just generally in the whole council of scripture, but I'll be addressing some specific phrases and things in this passage. We see, first of all, that government, governmental authority is delegated by God. In verse 1, it says, no, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So governmental authority is a derived authority, and it's subject to the ultimate authority, which is God. Rulers, as I said, should acknowledge God as the supreme authority, even if they don't trust him in a salvific sense and acknowledge him in that way. They should still at least acknowledge him as king and ruler over all. And that was true of a lot of the founding fathers of this country. Some, many of them were theists. They weren't necessarily worshiping Jesus Christ, but they did acknowledge that there was God and that he was the ruler of all. And so every ruler should the rejection of God and his authority is a premise that upends and destabilizes the entire institution of government. And it always ends in totalitarianism and tyranny. When men, when men and rulers reject God, they look at themselves as the ultimate rulers and the ultimate authorities. And they do what's right in their own eyes, which is always evil. So government is, governmental authority is delegated by God Government is a servant of God, it says in verse 4. How does government serve him? A few different ways. It says in verse 4 that the government serves him by bearing the sword. Now the sword in imperial Rome was a symbol of authority and power, and even the power to take life if necessary. So the government serves God by bearing the sword, 
by carrying out his wrath or vengeance. It says in verses 4 and 5, now this is his wrath in a temporal civil sense, not an eternal ultimate sense, which will be exacted by Christ himself when he sits to judge the living and the dead. But the government serves God by carrying out his wrath and his vengeance in this temporal sense. On whom? Verse 4, he does, they do it on wrongdoers. Verse 3, it says that, that government is a terror to bad conduct. And it says in 1 Peter 2.14 that governmental authorities are there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So government authority is delegated by God, government is a servant of God, and government is a blessing from God. It's get, some of you say, wait, hold on. <laughs> Sometimes it's a blessing. It's intended generally to be a blessing by God. It's given by him to restrain evil. It says in verse 5, if a man will not obey for conscience sake, then he's at least compelled to obey by the threat of punishment. Even if men don't have a conscience, then they at least can be restrained by threats to their life or livelihood. And this is generally a good thing. As such, it says in verse 7, the government is worthy of honor and taxes. Some of you say, I don't know about that. (laughs) There is a case to be made for exorbitant taxes being sinful, which our government probably has entered into. But nevertheless... Generally speaking, government is worthy of honor and taxes. But this raises an important question. How does government, it's a critical question, how does government define what is good or bad? Everything hangs on that question. If the government is given by God to praise those who do good and to punish those who do evil, what, what happens if the government flips it or they start making their own determinations of what's good or evil. How can they determine what's good and evil? Government should be shaped by the word of God, and more specifically by the law of God, the law of Moses. Somebody says, what about the notion, the American notion of separation of church and state? This is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in our day. And it's constant, it's a bludgeon that's constantly wielded by godless secularists against Christians and against right rule. For one thing, the original intent of the founders of this country was to prevent an institutional church by the state. It wasn't to prevent the church from influencing the state at all. It wasn't to prevent Christianity from having any influence over laws, over legislation, over governmental authorities. But that's how it's treated and talked about today. Well, it has to, there, can be a, there must be a total division between Christianity and government. But that's, that wasn't the intent of the founders of this country, and it certainly isn't the intent of God when he establishes governing authorities. The state must be influenced by the church and by the scriptures, or it will necessarily devolve into an evil institution, which we're really seeing largely now. Not just here in America, but abroad as well, and has been true throughout history. 
There really is no, there, there can be no plurality in the public sphere. In the political sphere, there can be no neutrality. It's either Christ or chaos. You're either for him or against him. No person or governmental institution can be morally or ethically neutral. It's not possible. But this, this is the great lie that secularists have thrust upon us for the better part of a century, thrust upon the church, and the church, we have really been naive enough to believe this and are reaping the consequences of it now. God is disciplining his people for giving away that premise and saying, well, it's fine. We, we'll keep our Christianity here in our church. We'll keep our Christianity over in our family. We'll practice it in our individual lives. But let's make the public sphere a neutral place where all religions can flourish and all people can do. But that makes no sense as a Christian. It makes no sense. And it's not possible. Because if you remove the scriptures as the authority, then it's just every ruler doing what's right in his own eyes, which always devolves into evil. So the scriptures have to be where we go to define good and evil. I've talked to people before who said, this, it's so funny, if you just own this, if you just own it as a Christian, like that you believe that the word of God should shape and influence every sphere of life in the world, including government and including politics. If you own that, then it throws a wrench in people's, a lot of people's gears because especially people who abjectly hate God and say there is no God and you, you talk with them and they say, you start talking about politics and about government and they'll make an assertion and then you come in with something from the word of God and they say, no, 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 We're, let's talk about this without bringing religion into it. And I just say, no, no. <laughs> you, you cannot talk about God's world without bringing God into it. And that's a foolish thing to even try to do, especially as a Christian. But it really throws, because most Christians' response to that is, oh, and then to get really frazzled and try to figure out how to debate with people over politics without using the scriptures and without using the presuppositions that are set forth in the word of God. And so then they immediately disarm you and, you and you don't know what to do. But don't fall for that. We always return to the word of God and use it as the ultimate authority. Even those who don't acknowledge his authority are under his authority. So government should be shaped by the word of God. Civil laws must be modeled after God's law if they would be truly just. God's law is the best law. Paul says in Romans that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I think there's really been a lot of misunderstanding in the church today because of the way that the law of God is talked about. Whenever the law is talked about seemingly in a negative sense in the New Testament, it is not the law per se. It's the works of the law. Works of the law. No man shall be justified by works of the law. When you look to the law for justification and for righteousness, you cannot find it there because no one can keep it. 
But we, we've sort of taken that to the extreme and, and said not just that the works of the law are bad, but that the law itself is bad. That the, not just that the works of the law are not sufficient for justification, but the law itself is no longer necessary. That, that was then. That was the old time. <clears throat> and even if many Christians may give lip service to the law, saying, oh yeah, I believe that the law is holy and that it's righteous and good, in practice, they still don't believe that it's good. I heard somebody, a, a prominent Christian leader, mock the law of God. He's doing an interview with some other Christians. They were, they were talking about the law that's set forth in Deuteronomy for stoning rebellious children. And they asked him about that, and he said, or they were asking him about the law, and they were, they were arguing, they were putting forth their case for the goodness of the law of God and for it to be used as a rubric and as a template for our laws today. And, he's, and he sort of mocked and said, well, should we, should we stone disobedient children? That's mocking the law of God. That's taking the law of God and saying, well, that was, that was the barbaric times under the Mosaic administration. We're much more sophisticated than that now. But it derides the mind and the heart of God because during that time that was a good and a just law and it wasn't just well your child disobeys and then you everybody comes out and stones it was the pattern of a rebellious child who was continually breaking laws and was destroying society and if you have a whole culture a whole group of people doing that then then the whole society would be destroyed and so the law was take such a child to the elders, and then the elders stone him with stones. But even if we don't understand that, we must come underneath it and say the law of God is holy and righteous and good. And we wrestle with God's word until it changes, changes us. And we have to resist the temptation to look at things like that in the law of God, in the Old Testament, that we don't understand and say, well, that was a different time. That was you know, God's not like that anymore, or disconnect it from God and say that was some barbaric practice that they did back then. No, it was good, and it is good still. Or some people will set to, seek to set Jesus in contrast to the law of God and say that when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount that he was tacitly deriding God's law by saying, you've heard that it was said back then in that old time. But now I tell you, but th here's a better way. This is replacing the law of God. But that's not what he was saying. And here's an example. When it, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if someone hits you, then turn the other cheek. He was not saying, the old way was, if somebody hit you, then you turn around and slap them on the face. But now you can't do that anymore. That's not what he was saying. If you go back and you look at that law, that law was to be exacted and administered by governing authorities. And he was reinforcing that, and he was using that as a way to say, personal vengeance is not the way of my disciples. You leave that to the governmental authorities as it is written in the law. So when we understand God's law, we see that it really is good. And even if we don't see it, then we trust it still. We wrestle with God's word until it changes us. 
It's helpful also to understand that there are multiple functions of the law. One of the most common and most conspicuous functions of it, with which we're probably the most familiar, is that God's law shows us our sin and it convicts the conscience. It's said elsewhere, it's written in Galatians, that the law is a tutor or a schoolmaster that's intended to lead us to Christ. The law of God reveals the mind and the heart of God. It's another function. But the function that we're really concerned with here is that the law of God exemplifies just and right legislation. And if you go back and you look at civil law in the Old Testament, then you see that a lot of those things are case studies from which we can extract general principles and use them. Not that we would take a one-for-one and say, well, that was the law in Israel, so now this is the law here. That's not the intent. The intent is God knows and he's created us to be reasonable and rational creatures, and so we take the principles and we extract them in wisdom, and then we can apply them to our context. I read an essay recently by Stephen Wolfe where he says this, Civil law, when true and just, is neither arbitrary nor has its force from the will of the magistrate alone. Rather, it orders civil life in accordance with a higher law and has its force from that higher law. In this way, the magistrate mediates divine civil rule. Now somebody says, well, wait a minute, we don't want to be Christian nationalists. You've heard that term. Maybe you've used that term. And I think there's a valid critique in that and a valid caution, depending on what you mean by it. If by Christian nationalism you mean that Christians look to and trust in the state rather than or more than they look to and trust in Christ, then it's a bad thing. We don't want functional worship of the state. Well, so-and-so is God's man who's going to come and deliver us from all this turmoil. No, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Only brokenness and repentance can do that. Now, God can use a man, but it's foolish and wrong to look to some political figure as though he were Christ himself, and he's going to come and set us free and deliver us. So in that sense, it's bad if that's what you mean by Christian nationalism or if you mean forced conversion by the state. We don't want that either. We don't want the state administering and getting its hands in the church and legislating laws that say you have to be Christian. You have to worship God. That's not the way. But on the other hand, if by Christian nationalism, and I think there's some confusion between the meaning of this when people talk about it, but... If by Christian nationalism you mean a country that has legislation that's based upon God's law, a political climate influenced by the word of God, and governmental positions are occupied by the people of God, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And it prevents much evil that would degenerate society and endanger people. Another important distinction is that civil laws must be limited to their appropriate sphere. 
this concept of spheres of authority is something that we've largely lost today as well, but it's generally been understood. You see it in the scriptures, and it's generally been understood throughout the ages that there are spheres of authority. There's the civil sphere, the public sphere. Then there's the church, and then there's the family. Another quote from that essay that I read recently by Stephen Wolf. An important principle of civil law is that its reach is limited to things that the other spheres of life cannot effectively regulate to the common good. The individual, family, society, civil associations, and churches have premacy in ordering the things concerning their own spheres. Thus, civil law should not take from families, churches, and individuals what each sphere can best determine for itself. We'll come back to that momentarily as we turn to look at implications for citizens. So that, that was the implications for government. Now we look at implications for citizens and particularly for Christian citizens of this country or of any country. And I, I want to subdivide that into two categories, which we see from the text and elsewhere in Scripture, and that's that the two implications are submission to government, which is explicit in the Romans 13 passage, and participation in government, which is implicit throughout the Bible. Submission to government and participation in government. We see clearly the command for submission to government in this text. And that the default mode for every Christian should be that of obedience to government. Obedience to government. It says plainly in verse 1, let every, this is actually, depending on how you translate verse 7, this is the only command in this whole text. And if it's not the only, then it's at least the most prominent. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? It gives the reason. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then it goes on to say in verse 2 that whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and by extension, resists God himself. You resist the authorities, you're resisting God. There is a place for resistance. We'll come to that momentarily. <clears throat> but the reason given, there are a few reasons given as to why. A few additional reasons. To avoid punishment is one. It says in verse 2, it's, it's called judgment. To avoid judgment in verses 4 and 5, it's called God's wrath. You say, well, I thought Christ took all the wrath of God for us at the cross. Well, he certainly did in terms of judicial wrath. But in terms of civil wrath, if you break a law, you will be punished for breaking that law. And the text calls that the wrath of God or the vengeance of God. It's his civil wrath against those who do evil. There is recompense for it. Not eternal recompense if you're in Christ, but temporal recompense. You can't just go and murder somebody and then be on your way. So to avoid 
judgment, to avoid God's wrath. And then in verse 5, there's a higher reason given for the sake of conscience. That we might have a clean conscience before God and not displease him. So the default mode should be obedience. Christians should have the highest regard and respect for the magistrate. Now this is, I, I admit to you how difficult this can be when, especially in our time, when many of the magistrates are abjectly evil. And even if they're not legislating evil, then they're legislating folly, which makes it difficult. But we respect them and we revere them because they still do restrain evil in society, presumably. I think they do here in our context. You could argue that in other, you know, tyrannical, totalitarian governments that they don't restrain evil, that they simply propagate it. But I think here we're still under an administration where there is considerable restraint of evil. And so we pay respect and we have regard generally for the magistrates. We should generally trust that they're making just laws for the common good, many of which, and this is key, many of which we don't fully understand. We give deference to the lawgivers with the understanding that there are things that the government legislates for the common good that we don't necessarily understand, but we defer to them and say, well, maybe I don't know why they did that, but there's probably a good reason for it. We should be willing to obey laws that we don't like. We shouldn't act like renegades. We, shouldn't, we can't just see a law or even, you know, even, however small it is, and say, well, I think that's silly. They don't have the authority to do that, and so I'm just not going to do it. No. F.F. F. Bruce says in his comments on Roman, commentary on Romans, Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to his authorized demands. But a key point here is that obedience is expected under the premise, the whole premise of this passage is that government is indeed praising what's good and punishing what's evil. And so that brings us to the question of when to disobey, when to defy, when to resist the magistrate governing authorities. I'll read this quote from Sir T.M. Taylor from the Heritage of the Reformation. It says, The obedience which the Christian man owes to the state is never absolute, but at the most partial and contingent. It follows that the Christian lives always in a tension between two competing claims, that in certain circumstances, disobedience to the command of the state may not be only a right, but also a duty. This has been the classical doctrine ever since the apostles declared that they ought to obey God rather than men. So what are those certain circumstances to which he refers in that quote? They are several. First, the demands of allegiance that's due to God alone. We might think of the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or 
when they were commanded to bow down to the image. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. Demands of allegiance that's due God alone is a circumstance for disobedience. The forbiddance of obeying God's commands, like Daniel. Don't pray. You're not allowed to pray. And he did it anyway. Or another instance, when the government begins punishing good and praising evil, which is the reverse of God's command and the purpose for which he instituted government. Or another instance would be when the government begins operating outside the bounds of the rule of law. There's a really interesting example of this in Acts 16 when Paul and Cyrus, uh, Paul and Cyrus, Paul and Silas are in Philippi and the magistrate comes there, they, there's this big uproar, and the magistrate comes and beats them with rods and then casts them into prison, holding them fast in the stocks. And they learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they become very afraid because that was against the law to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen. And so they try to go and get them. They send the officers to go and say, oh, we're sorry, you can go. And Paul could have just said, oh, okay, praise the Lord, let's go. But he doesn't do that. Very interestingly, he says, no, no, no. They have publicly beaten us, Roman citizens, uncondemned, and now they would like to send us away quietly? No. And so they force them to come and publicly acknowledge that they shouldn't have done that, that it was wrong for them to do that, and then set them free and release them. So they were operating outside of the bounds of the rule of law, and Paul called them on it and made them own it. There's a, an argument to be made, I think a, a very convincing argument that many, if not all, of the emergency orders during COVID, all the mask wearing and the shuttering of businesses and all that stuff, were operating outside of the bounds of the rule of law. Most of those were the, the government governors and high authorities are generally, there's legislation that gives them the power to enact emergency orders and temporarily do certain things. But when they are manifestly overstepping those bounds for something that's being blown hugely out of proportion and it becomes obvious that they're doing those things not for the good, but for their own consolidation of power and control. And it's not just a temporary emergency. An emergency, a temporary emergency is something that's Manifest to all is clearly this is an emergency and it's for a limited period of time, not years. That's operating outside the bounds of the rule of law. Another instance would be overstepping the bounds of magisterial jurisdiction. What I mean by that is stepping into the spheres of church or family. We see an example of that in Acts 4 when it says the, the rulers, elders, and scribes commanded the apostles not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They said, we're not going to do that. We'll obey God rather than men. 
A, a modern day example of this would be using those emergency orders that are referred to to limit gathering sizes of the church or to say, as they did in California, well, you, can't, you can gather, but you can't sing. It's absurd. You can gather, but you can't sing praises to God. No, they have then overstepped their bounds. Or quarantining healthy people. You don't have, there's actually, if you go back and look at the Old Testament law, there were provisions there for quarantining sick people, but never provisions for quarantining healthy people. That's overstepping their bounds. Or the most conspicuous instance of when it would be appropriate to resist is totalitarian governments or abject tyranny. Now, you may hear, I've, I've heard people argue, well, would you, we shouldn't just ignore that and just focus on spiritual things, evangelism, discipleship. But I find it interesting that a lot of the same people who would make that argument would be the same people who are, say that Christians should fight against injustice. So we should fight against injustice in this way, but not in this way. But that doesn't make sense. Christ is king over all of life. And if we live in a physical world that God cares about, particularly the well-being of its inhabitants made in his image, then we should seek to do good and to administer justice and righteousness in the land. Did you know that in the 21st century alone, 120 million people were killed at the hand of totalitarian governments? So saying, well, we should just be spiritual and not, you know, just preach the gospel and ju- not worry about all that, is to just cast aside the significance of 120 million lives lost. And typically the way that totalitarianism occurs is it is a slow fade. It's like a frog in boiling water. It's a slow fade. Little by little, the people become propagandized and don't realize what's happening, and then suddenly there's a clinch on power that can then not be taken away without considerable force. Well, maybe you'll object to that and say, well, this was written when the Jews were under the authority of the Romans, and they were an oppressive and evil government, so how can you say that? How can you make that argument from in light of the fact that this text was written in that context. Well, it's interesting. I read in this commentary, the same commentary on Romans by F.F. Bruce, this quote. It says, The position of the Jews within the Roman Empire was regulated by a succession of imperial edicts. Indeed, as a subject nation within the empire, they enjoyed quite exceptional privileges. Jewish communities had the status of collegia licita, permitted associations. The various practices which marked off Jews from Gentiles were confirmed to them. Those practices might seem absurd and superstitious in Roman eyes, but they were safeguarded nonetheless by imperial law. They included the Sabbath law and food laws and the prohibition of graven images. Imperial policy forbade governors of Judea to bring military standards with the emperor's image attached to them within the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem. If by Jewish law the trespassing of a Gentile within the inner courts of the Jerusalem temple was a sacrilege deserving the death penalty, 
Rome confirmed Jewish law in this respect, even quite exceptionally to the point of allowing the execution of the death sentence for such a trespass when the offender was a Roman citizen. So yes, the Romans were, they ruled with an iron fist, but the Jews enjoyed exceptional privileges and protections under them in a lot of ways. So those are the instances, and there are probably more of when to disobey, but then the question becomes how. How do we, as Christians and faithful citizens of the country in which we live, resist when a government oversteps its bounds? And the answer to that question is through a doctrine that was largely developed by Calvin and Luther and other reformers during that period of history. It's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It means that not, there shouldn't be individual resistance according to each man's own judgment because that would just be anarchy. Well, I don't think that law is right and you don't think that law is right and, he, and everybody's just in chaos and not in agreement about what they think is right, where they think the government's overstepping. And so this principle dictates that lower authorities, magistrates, such as governors, local police, or even pastors, can defy higher authorities, like federal, in cases like the ones I mentioned. And it's based upon what's called the private citizen argument, which says that any evil done by an office holder is done as a private citizen rather than by the office And as such, they're acting outside of the bounds of the authority that God gave them. So they're not acting in fulfillment of their official role. They're going outside of that role and acting as an individual. It is then the duty. It's not just a right. In fact, many of our forebears considered rights and duties the same thing, or at least inextricably linked. It is then the duty of lesser magistrates to resist or remove them from office. Now, interestingly, the private citizen argument and the doctrine of the lesser magistrate were used in the Declaration of Independence to justify resistance by lesser leaders who would otherwise be obliged to obey. And so we have America. Now, maybe some of you remain unconvinced or you're just questioning what, you know, how do I make sense of these passages that prescribe submission to governmental authority? Well, it would be helpful to look at similar passages that describe and command a wife's obedience or submission to her husband. Certainly, no one would reasonably think that if a husband is abusing his wife, if he's overstepping his, the bounds of his authority and he's doing evil, that she should just ignore it and just say, oh, it's fine. I'll just keep living in this house where I'm and mis- beaten and mistreated. I'm not going to tell anybody or do anything because the Bible tells me I have to submit to my husband. I don't think anybody would reasonably say that. So it's a, it's a similar principle, though. God sets boundaries and he gives authority and then when people who he gives authority to step outside of those boundaries, then it's appropriate 
to resist. But by and large, we should submit to government. That's explicit, clearly, in the passage. And the last thing, as I said, is that we should participate in government. Christians should participate in government. And I think that we've really failed in this regard. The church has and Christians has, have in the past several decades. I mean, when you look at the pool of politicians, even when you just say the word politician, you're like, ugh. Because there are the, the people who run for office and who generally get elected are conniving and deceitful men for the most part. They're not righteous, upstanding men and women, and generally, if they are Christians, then they're weak ones, or they're Christians to an extent in their private life, but they're not willing to come in boldly and be Christians in the office that, they're, that they occupy. But we need this. Christ is king over all of life, and Christians should use every means available to fulfill the Great Commission in discipling the nations and working for the good of all men. If we really want the good of all people, if we want justice to roll down like waters, we want righteousness to rule, then doesn't it follow and make sense that we should seek positions of authority that are given by God to legislate and to rule well? Otherwise, we entrust those positions to evil men who will use them corruptly to to do evil. It makes no sense to concede ground unnecessarily to the enemy himself who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so if there is a vacuum there, if we don't occupy those positions, then the enemy certainly has his people who will come and do it. And he'll just say, thanks, I appreciate the easy fight. You could look to the biblical examples of Joseph ruling Egypt, Daniel in Babylon and the positions they were given. But somebody might object and say, well, what about the Christian prohibition against repaying evil for evil? You know, aren't we supposed to, we're not supposed to use force. We turn the other cheek, just like I mentioned earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a good point, but it's explained by this. I'll read this quote from A.R. Vidler from the book Christ's Strange Work. It says, The sanction that the Bible gives to the forcible restraint of evil puzzles many modern Christians because of its apparent contradiction to Christ's way of love and his precept of non-resistance to evil. But this comes from failing to distinguish the preservation of the world from the salvation of the world. The truth is that the Bible affirms both the law, which works wrath, and the faith, which works by love, both Christ's strange work and his proper work. And so it just goes back to considering the charge that God's given to those in authority to administer his wrath. And when a Christian is in such a position of authority, he is not taking personal vengeance on people who have done evil. He's administering the office as given and delegated by God. We should want Christian men making righteous laws 
governing justly for the glory of God and the good of all. So, the takeaways, simple takeaways, and I think we did, we experienced a measure of really needing to think through and apply these things when everything with COVID is going on, and but we've experienced some reprieve from that now. But I don't think that that's over. I don't think that's over. Unless there really is a, a national brokenness and repentance and a return to God, then things will continue on and God's judgment will continue on and things will become more difficult and we'll have to become more proficient in understanding these things and learning how to think about them and learning how to act on them. So we need to practice obeying when it's fit to obey and resisting when it's fit to resist. And I concede that some people will deem resistance necessary further down the line than other people. Some people say, well, here's my spot. Here's my spot where I'm, you know, I think this is where the government's overstepped their bounds. But it's good that we have one another and we can work through those things together. And we should pray for we should really pray for the Lord to raise up men and women in the lesser and lower magistrates who will be willing to say, I'm not enforcing that law. I'm not going to do that. Christians and non-Christians alike. And we should pray for and work towards just and righteous rule on the earth until the king himself returns to usher in his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we look to and we long for the day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And when the new heavens will come down and we will be in that city where righteousness dwells and we will get to experience the joy and the glory of your kingdom extending to all the corners of the earth and there being no resistance to you. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we long for and look towards that day. Lord, bring it quickly. And in the meantime, we pray that you teach us, teach us to think well and to think rightly, to think biblically about these things. And we pray that you would grant a brokenness, that you would grant a repentance, both in the household of faith, which is where you start judgment, the household of God, and nationally, that you would grant us a repentance and a brokenness and acknowledging that you are the Lord of all the earth. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. May all of the magistrates in our land and all the people bow the knee to Christ and acknowledge you as the supreme ruler. And we pray that you would be merciful, that you would be gracious to us, and that you would move men and women by the Holy Ghost Christians to occupy governmental positions. And we pray that righteousness and justice would prevail. And give us wisdom. Show us how we can work towards that here and now in our little town. How we can be faithful in a little bit. 
We pray that you'd entrust us with much. In Jesus' name, 